Welcome to Obstetric Anesthesia Basics, a short podcast series for anesthesia trainees new to obstetric anesthesia. Hi everyone, welcome to um, another of the Obstetric Anesthesia Basic tutorials. I've got a couple of people with me today, so um, Dr. Matt Rucklidge, an ex-supervisor of training here at King Edward, who's... <laughs> <laughs> who's put in a few epidurals. Claim, claim to fame is he reckons he's never done a dural puncture. But we haven't checked with his colleagues well, in the UK, so we, me. so we don't know if that's true or not. <laughs> and then I've got Shilpa Desai, who's also one of the consultants here at King Edward. So welcome, guys. Thanks for coming along to help us out. Hi, Thanks, Roger. Nice to be here. The idea of this is just to go through the basics for people who are sort of new to obstetric anesthesia, and today we're going to talk about uh, labour epidural analgesia. Um so we're just uh, going to start off, um, I'm just going to start off with what's the most common way that people get asked to do an epidural. So it's just your pager goes off and um, a midwife, um, you phone, uh, phone them back and the midwife um, is on the phone. She's requesting that you come down and place an epidural in her, um, I've got written down here patient, but they're not patients, are they? It's a natural process. And her um, parturient, who's, a, who's nulliparous, she's five centimetres dilated and she's very distressed. Um, so, what do you guys normally do when you get a phone call like this? What, what information do you ask them about? Should I start? Yeah. Yeah, so uh, it's always nice to have a little bit more information, um, parity, um, just knowing whether this labour is going to progress quickly or less quickly, um, yep. where in the labour they are, um, and any other factors that might affect the provision of pain relief, for example, obesity, um, any other sort of issues, back surgery, things like that. I won't ask specifically for that, but I would ask if there were any other issues. Yep. Uh, and maybe just to add with that, even if there was any patient factors as well, so what Matt's also said, but in with um, with the pregnancy, so for example, I'm thinking preeclampsia as well. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Uh, we probably should address this because if this comes up, I find it's like uh, some, uh, some people, some of the midwives tell me that everyone asks for a platelet count. Let's address this now. Do you need to have a platelet count on every woman that you put an epidural on? Short answer, no. Yes, that's all right. <laughs> no. I'd agree with that. I, yeah. don't, I don't. But so, you, but you do need a platelet count on some women. Yeah, so that's right. So we're not going to go into detail, but yeah. no, you don't need a platelet count on um, all women. But if they have a history of thrombocytopenia or they have preeclampsia, then usually we would like to know what the platelets are. Okay. Um, all right, so the, you're, if you're on... Uh, you're on for labour, you go down into the room what do, how do you guys approach this when you walk into the room um, I guess I firstly walk in and introduce myself and just say hi I'm Shulpa, I'm the anaesthetist I'm here to help with your analgesia um, and obviously at the same time start a consent process as well um, in terms of uh, yeah, consenting the patient for placing an epidural and um, so, <clears throat> what, what, about you? What, what sort of things do you ask about first, uh, Matt? I'll, I'll try and take a, <coughs> a brief history. Um, if there are any um, allergies, I think it's always useful to know because we are yep. giving medicines in that room. <coughs> um, any uh, medical issues, and I can try and get some of this information from the midwife um, yeah. or from the patient as well. And I always do kind of look at them as if I'm thinking, if you came to theatre, would I? 
be worried. Uh, but I'm not going to talk anything about going to theatre at this point. Yep. But it's just an opportunity, I guess, to um, to eyeball the lady and just um, if you've got any concerns there. And then I would take her through the um, consent process for an epidural in terms of providing some detail about the process and also the risks. Yep, okay. Um, so who wants this is a this is very um there's a broad range of approaches to this but how do you explain um what an epidural is to the woman and how do you get consent what are the things you guys cover um i can take this one so i think i i usually start with just saying you know what an epidural is so um and I, i i try speaking in very lay terms in terms of you know a needle through the spinous, uh, through the uh, in, in between the spinous processes, needle doesn't stay in there. All that remains in there is a catheter, so it's just a plastic tubing through which we administer local anaesthetic. Yep. Um, and, and so, uh, and, and you know, just reassuring them that a needle doesn't stay in there. Um, and then what the, uh, the the epidural does in terms of providing local anaesthetic, how we administer that, and then also connecting them to a pump, and that gives them. Uh, Sorry, guys. <laughs> it's my phone. <laughs> it's a real, it's real life. Real life. <laughs> okay. Just pretend she was having a contraction. And you had to pause on your explanation. Perfect. Well, she had a contraction. <laughs> okay, my contraction's finished. Okay. Keep going. Now. Great. Thank you. Um, where was I? Yeah, and then um, in, in terms of uh, the the. Lo- the local anaesthetic, um, the the delivery mechanism at, at King Eddie's, where we give a, a bolus every forty five minutes, for example. Yep. Um, and then I talk them through. This is g- given the fact that the patient is, you know, able to listen to all my instructions, and um, and you know she's not in severe distress. I'll talk her through the positioning and what's important in terms of positioning, in terms of staying nice and still for me when I'm I'm putting the epidural in. Um, you know, communicating with me, uh, and I sometimes just give her a realistic approach of you know sometimes it's uh, it can take a little bit longer as we're trying to get into the right space um, to find the, the the correct sort of epidural space, and sometimes it can take a bit longer. Um, yep. In terms of timing. Okay. So that's sort of it, the explanation. How, what about uh, Matt? Do you want to take on the second part of the of the discussion about um, consent and discussing complications and things? Yeah, sure. Uh, it's always useful if you provided some written information prior. So I think it's uh, yep. a lot of um, uh, labour wards have written information, and earlier on in labour, you know, if they've had a chance to look at those, um, that information can really help smooth the uh, the verbal discussion when labour has often progressed to some extent. Yep. So I think that's that's useful. And things that I would mention, I would mention the risk of um, failure set the expectations, and in terms of risk of failure, you know, it's hard to give exact definitions and risks because it depends on what your definition of failure is but certainly not working uh, entirely adequately is you know up to about sort of one in eight or so so it's it's yeah. not uncommon and i think that's important to get that message across that it doesn't always provide complete loss of um, pain yep sensation and with that is the risk of uh, on some occasions having to recite uh, the epidural uh, but you don't want to put too many negatives on it you have to then reiterate that most of the time they work well and they work well on the first attempt yeah provide very good pain relief uh risk of a headache is probably one of the most significant risks to talk about and um we would i guess quote our typically our institution's rate yep. um ideally probably your own rate but 
if you've only done two epidurals before, <laughs> one of which was a dural puncture, probably not good Stick to say a fifty percent chance. So, um, you know, and typical sort of rates around the world of sort of one in a hundred or so. Yeah. Um, and I was just briefly say, if you do get a headache, it should settle on its own. Sometimes we have to do something about it. And then I would mention the risk of nerve injuries. Yeah. Try and avoid the term nerve damage. I would say nerve injuries. Uh, which may be temporary or permanent, typically temporary, so they go away, and we see that maybe one in a thousand or so, and put those numbers into context. So for this hospital, I would say maybe two or three per year, maybe a numbness, tingle, weakness in the leg, goes away with time. More serious permanent nerve problems are much less common. They happen very infrequently. Yep. That's what I would say, but, you know, there's no hard and fast rules to this, and you will be influenced, I think, by your own unfortunate cases that <laughs> might have come across yeah. over the years. Yeah, but I, right. I don't mention paralysis, I don't mention um, high spinals, I don't mention all those other things because I want to try and get the epidural in and make the patient comfortable. Yeah, and you want to keep them on... <clears throat> you want them to feel a sense of trust because you're about to do something quite invasive. And uh, so you tr- you're trying to balance the fact that you actually want to tell them more, you know, get informed consent and tell them about things that, are, that could happen. But you don't want them to be yeah. <coughs> petrified. <laughs> Absolutely. And this is where so written is information so is really useful. So yeah, either yeah. taken in the antenatal period um, or earlier on in labour where you've yeah. got a bit more time to take in this information. Yeah. Yeah. I, if they specifically ask me like about, oh, you know, paralysis or something like that, I say, listen, it's like getting hit by lightning if you go outside when it's raining or run over by a bus when you're walking across, across the road. road. Yeah. It can happen. But, you know, it's so unlikely yeah. that you shouldn't really worry about it. Um, and look, you might need to tailor that conversation depending on the specific risks of the um, yeah, the yeah. woman as well. You know, yeah. that certain risk may be higher. Yeah. You know, if you've got low platelets, or um, the risk of failure may be higher if you have obesity. So um, yeah, you know, tailor yeah, it to, to the patient. Um, we're going to do. We're going to talk about um, in, in the next episode about troubleshooting or common problems and things. So we'll just assume uh, we, we can perhaps go into more yep. detail with some okay. of that stuff. Okay, so then presumably you're going to get her positioned. Uh, what do you guys do? How do you, how do you position your patient to get her ready? If we have access to the positioning device here at King Eddie's, I would use that. Yep. Uh, otherwise, if it's um, if the patient is in distress and we don't have time to go get the positioning device, and if there's if I think this would be a simple epidural to place, then I'd just use the. Um, a chair in front of the patient to position their their feet on um, a, a pillow underneath their axilla, um, sort of, and and I guess teach them or tutor them into the the positioning, the ideal positioning as well. Yes. Yeah. So the angry cat. Yeah. The, <laughs> the um, prawn on the Barbie. Well. <laughs> the banana. <laughs> There's a lot of different descriptions of how to curve your back, isn't it? Yeah. Hopefully, most people listening understand what, what curvature we're going for. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the angry banana on the on the on the barbecue. Um, well, you could go lateral. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So, so most people, think, um, so that's true. We don't do that very. Well, we don't see that very often, do we? But um, some people out there do do yeah. that. And I think that's reasonable if people um, uh, you can palpate their anatomy fairly yeah. easily. And uh, say, for example, they're feeling faint and can't sit up, or yeah. you know, sometimes there's other reasons why, yeah, yeah. why it's difficult. Do you agree? I do. Yeah, and every so often you you might find somebody who just struggles to sit up it's just increasingly uncomfortable Um, but you can sometimes I think get somebody into that angry squirrel or whatever (laughs) angry angry cat prawn um, on the lateral 
yes. um, position a little bit yeah. easier perhaps than uh, yep. you know just bringing the you know yep. the knees up to the chest can be easier than trying to explain that yep sort of pushing the back out when you're sitting up especially if you're in a lot of pain um, yeah. yes and i find the uh, positioning device because uh, we've had that in the theater for a long time but i find down label that's really useful because one of the problems you have is that some there's some women who just every contraction they just start sort of doing a bit of zumba and it seems to go away when they're on yeah. the positioning device because it's sort of like a massage chair. I'll try and put a picture in the in the link to this so people can see it. They just sort of seem to like stay curled up on it. Yeah. Um, so it's even more useful in labelled, I find, than in theatre. But I know that it's not that commonly um, encountered, except maybe at King Edward. Yeah. The other thing is the with the labour bed. Um, it's got all those breaks in it, and yes. So just making sure yeah. that the hips aren't. Yeah, that's you know, in, in the gap yeah. on the bed. And so, look, I, th- I think I always say it's a bit like, you know, getting a patient ready for, you know, looking after the airway, intubating, spend a bit of time positioning and preparing. Because yes. once you're scrubbed and prepped, it makes it so much true. harder. So your yeah, first go should be the best go. And, yeah. and look, sometimes I feel, you know, getting the patient closer to you makes it a little easier. Yes, yeah, so I think so your, your arms aren't too outstretched. And whether your uh, legs are hanging off the side of the bed, or whether they're just sticking out, you know, if your patient's sitting right back, um, I don't think it probably makes much difference in terms of opening up the back. Yeah, um, no, I agree. And providing access. So I think just getting to the position you're, you're comfortable with, spend a bit of time doing that so that, you know, you're not having to move, you know, things yep. around once you're up and running. Okay, who wants to talk about the next bit? So um, how do you guys approach the, you know, I presume you've, we're not going to go and do the, the nitty-gritty, but how about, um, I did... Sort of, you know, you're scrubbed and you've got all your equipment, uh, and you're palpating the back and about to start. How would you go about that? What's what's your any tips or tricks? Uh, oh, yeah. I'm just trying to remember. So, so <laughs> nowadays we're not not supposed to use the liquid claw hex. Okay. So I, um, I encourage people to paint the back with a swab before you go and get yes. scrubbed. I think that's what mine. I'm misreading my notes, so I think that's what I was talking about. Okay. Yeah. So paint, there is the, the there is the other chlorhexidine, which is that squeezy one. Yeah. That the the handle for that is sterile, whereas the lollipops are not sterile. Yes, that's right. So yeah. if you've forgotten to paint the back, yeah. you can use this the one the with a sponge. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. That's the one with a sponge. Um. Okay. So I think worth making a point of care with chlorhexidine. Yes. Whichever way you do it, you know, whether you're using so the pre-made prep sticks or um, you know the chlorhexidine going into a pot and there have been shortages with some of the prep sticks so yes. you, you might every so often still have to revert back to chlorhexidine in a pot and I think the important message is to do that before you open up your epidural equipment and yes. uh, but you still can contaminate your gloves with a prep stick you know and, and yeah. again with Change the gloves. Uh, chloroprep stick um, you know the one you mentioned Shilpa yeah. where you, you break it if you shake it it's got a little air hole you can actually get chlorhexidine over everything as well so yeah just be careful with chlorhexidine yeah. um, yes especially if you know you did have an issue with getting your prep sticks and you're going back to you know the uh, solution just make sure you're getting rid of it before you get any of your epidural kit out. Yep. Yes, and, uh, and I mean, hopefully well. there's no yeah. s- there's yeah. no colourless chlorhexidine uh, out there, but I don't know who's listening to this podcast, so make sure you don't have um, a, f- a liquid chlorhexidine prep that looks like saline or some other uh, med- some, something else that you could draw up and inject uh, epidurally yeah. or intrathecally. Yeah, yeah you, you really don't want to be yep. giving chlorhexidine uh, into the neuraxium. Um, okay. 
And I know in North America, it's like uh, the the, the um, standards for for what you need to wear and things are slightly different to here. But what do we here? We wear, you know, we, um, in Australasia, we run gowns and gloves and masks, so sort of full sterile prep. Yeah, and yep. presumably, you know, in, in, in the in the era of COVID in '95 and eyewear as well. Uh, what do you guys do? Who wants to talk about how they prepare? There any advice for novices about the trolley and the equipment and how they get things out and label them and that sort of stuff before you, you then start and draw thing, drawing up? Um, I think that's quite important to have a good a good routine there. Sure. Um, well, I can start that. Yep. Uh, so I will always draw up my local anaesthetic, so lidocaine uh, for the skin in a five mil syringe, um, and attach that to. Uh, to my brown sort of skin inf- infiltration needle or the uh, 25 gauge blue needle as well yep uh, either or but usually the t- uh, the 27 gauge brown needle um, and then I use my 10 mil syringe for the lo- uh, the bupivacaine fentanyl premix um, I know some people use a 20 mil and I guess just do whatever you always do yep um, I know there's people who may um, uh, sort of prepare the the entire epidural catheter remove it out and flush that I don't know what everyone's thoughts on that I, I don't, I don't touch the catheter at all until I'm ready to insert the catheter into uh, into the space um, anything else Matt? Yeah, I think like you say, be organised, yeah. do do it um, the way you do it, yeah. find the way that works for you yeah. um, and the thing is, you know, if you speak to lots of Experts doing some inverted commas. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the, air quotes. It works really on the well. Podcast, yeah. really well. <laughs> um, you'll find so many little kind of details, yeah. you know, and some experts will say the complete opposite to the other experts That's in right, terms yeah. of flushing catheters and yeah. do this, do that. The bottom line is, you know, just just do things carefully and be organised yeah. and just know what's in what syringe. And yeah, label right. the syringes if you're in a place where you. Uh, you know where it's good to label syringes which is probably most places but I know probably not everywhere does that um, and just be organised and develop yeah. a routine that yeah. works for you um, have the light appropriate and, yeah, and the other thing that I always do is um, is have a kidney dish that's just for my shops so I don't accidentally mm. cause a needle stick and I'm very yep. uh, fastidious about that um, yep yeah. yeah I agree I think the, the main online principle is just do do what you normally do, and, and and get into a routine to use the same syringes for the same thing. Oh, that's my take yeah. on it because it's going to be really easy one day to accidentally inject the wrong thing if you keep changing the size syringes. Yeah. yeah. Um, so the syringe that you use for epidural drugs is always the same syringe, and the syringe you use for local anaesthetics is always the same, and the one for intrathecal drugs is always the same. Yeah. Um, and we have labels, and so you definitely label them because sometimes if you're a trainee. Um, you know, you might have, have some diff- encounter some difficulties, and then you'll phone for help, and someone else will come in and they'll scrub up and jump in. And if they don't yeah. know what's, you know, they could easily make a mistake because you know, you've got two people involved. True. Um, and, and just be careful checking all the drugs that go yes, onto your trolley. Definitely. You know, you've got saline, local anaesthetic, um, two different types. Um, yeah. Maybe some fentanyl, maybe if you're doing a CSE. So, so you know, tired eyes, you know, dim rooms, late nights, yes. um, stressed. <laughs> Yep. Everywhere, so um, just be careful. Yeah, read the read the labels on the things that people are getting you to draw up. That's a definitely good advice. Yeah, yeah. I think be obsessive. Um, okay, 
Who wants to have a go through the, just quickly run through their approach to inserting an epidural and, and um, um, putting on the dressings and things like that? Should I do that? Yeah. Yeah, you, go for you, that. Yeah, you do the, the, all the teaching as well. So, so yeah, so, um, well, appropriate positioning, um, talk through um, what we're going to do. We're going to um, use some local anaesthetic to start with. Yep. Uh, choose your level we're going to go to. Um, and we're going to sort of aim low lumbar region. Um, again, obviously, working out exactly what level you're at is, is hard when you're palpating, but I think the key thing is not to go too high. Yes, and be, um, be be aware of, um, of that, that. Does it matter if you're just doing an epidural? Probably, uh, well, if you're at T12, uh, well, <laughs> <laughs> we we want to make sure our epidural. You know, if you think about you know the spread we need, we need yep. to get up to sort of you know low thoracic levels and as low down as you know mid sacral levels. Yeah, that's right. You know, good spread. So ideally, we want to be in in the kind of L3, 4, 2, 3 yep. level to get both of that. Um, so we're going to choose our level. We're going to infiltrate um, at that level with local anaesthetic, and then we'll do the uh, place the epidural. Um, I think most of us nowadays use uh, saline using a loss of resistance technique, yep. but there are still people um, out there using um, air, and that's probably fine in their hands. But I think most people are being taught to do this now with um, saline. Um, once we are in the epidural space, we're going to. Um, many of us would now flush the uh, epidural space with some saline. Introduce a bit of saline to maybe push the veins away before passing the epidural catheter. And uh, we would make a note of the depth of the epidural space before putting the catheter in. And then we would take the two-e needle out and secure it at a appropriate distance. Okay, so you, um, and what did I miss need? any sort of important steps there? No, you got the, you got it right. So, <coughs> what it's sort like of distance? I might have been doing it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> what distance? Just um, so some people listening might not might not have done epidural. Yeah. What, what sort <coughs> of length of catheter or dis- are you going to say? Say you get loss of resistance at five centimeters, and you thread the catheter in. How much are you going to leave the catheter? In a normally yeah, so if normal <coughs> BMI patient. Of so a normal BMI patient, which presumably if the, if the depth is at five centimetres, I would leave uh, typically around about four centimetres. Yep. So I've cathered it in the space. So it should be so nine centimetres on the back end. Yep. Yeah, at the, at the skin. And it's maybe just a quick point. So it's really good if you're just starting out doing these. You should run through all this on an epidural simulator with Absolutely, whoever's yeah. teaching you, not, not just listen to a podcast, where <laughs> <laughs> which is we had to show... Uh, the principles, um, and then how you do test the catheter. Uh, yeah, so you know, look, test, testing catheters is is uh, not entirely straightforward. Um, yeah. But I think what you're trying to do is, is 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 you know think of a number of different components of the test. Number one is did it go in without too much of a struggle? Um, did I have any doubt that I might have made a nick with the dura with the needle? Or when I aspirate the catheter, is there clear fluid coming out? So I think really important to, you know, not just think about testing a catheter as just putting local anaesthetic down or local anaesthetic with adrenaline, but lo- think of lots of different things. So yep. um, the ease of which it went in, um, always aspirate the catheter. I think it's really um, important to do that. Um, looking for blood and CSF. Um, and then uh, testing the catheter, uh, look, you know, there are many different ways of, of doing this and we don't really sometimes perhaps do an adequate test 
uh, but it's a kind of a compromise between trying to get analgesia on in a timely manner without putting too much down that might cause harm if you were in the wrong place. Yes. So uh, that said, would be, you know, I, I would give um, seven to eight mils of my 0.125% bupivacaine premix. Yep, with five mics per mil of fentanyl. With five mics per mil of fentanyl. Some places along that line. Yeah. Some places use ropivacaine. Most places have um, a similar prescription. Um, okay, and then, so once we've done that, what are we looking for here? So again, what I'm looking for is uh, for the pain not to go away quickly. So I think, you know, when, when uh, the woman says, Doctor, that's marvellous, my pain's gone away so fast. <laughs> <laughs> that in itself is... <laughs> then you should go back and not, try not always a good sign. Yeah, so. so I think it's all these things, you know, a test, testing a catheter is, you know, the, the speed at which the pain goes away, the aspiration, how much you put down, whether the blood pressure falls, whether you get a motor block. Yep. But you can get all or some of those things to some extent with an epidural catheter in the right place with the right amount yes. of local anaesthetic. So it's just not an exact science. So always have, you know, just, just be always, you know, thinking, is this in the right place? And a catheter can start in the right place and then move into the wrong place. Yeah, so um, we're worried about so intra, intrathecal, intravenous, or just not in the subcutaneous. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so, intramuscular. <laughs> Some, somewhere else above maybe yours but yeah so all, all we can really say is it's sometimes not in those other places yeah. but it might not even be in the epidural space that's right because you can get lo- uh, false loss of resistance sometimes yeah. yeah especially if you go in in the spine they've got a curvature in the spine or you're off mid off midline you can um, sometimes inject saline into this other space mm-hmm. which is probably you know next to the paraspinal muscles or something and, uh, yeah. and then once you've injected some saline you can thread a catheter into it yeah. it's just sitting in a non-epidural space yeah okay. so, so I, w- I would yeah epidural in uh give uh, my test dose yep. tape it all down and then i'm looking at the blood pressure i'm asking um any tingling weakness in the legs and i always ask them to do a quick leg check and i would hope that you know their next contraction well i'm not hoping they're still going to feel pain in the next <laughs> contraction but i'm, I'm hoping it's not going to go away straight away you know yes. if the contractions can be fairly frequently you know, with a um, you know seven mil dose of local anaesthetic in the epidural space, you would expect the pain still to be there to some extent. It may yeah. be a little bit less, and often it is, um, and that's kind of reassuring in some respects that yeah. the epidural is not in the intrathecal space. So it usually takes five to ten minutes to sort of you know get get them comfortable, yeah. doesn't it? Okay, uh, and then we write up a um, in our institution. I think most uh, obstetric units in WA now use a CAD pump with. Um, PCEA and intermittent bol- mandri boluses. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, but obviously, you just that just depends where you are. So, just go and find out what your local institution is. But most people have a pump, and the patient presses a button when they feel sore, and in the background, they're getting an intermittent sort of bolus that the pump's giving them. And the good old days, it used to be an infusion, but um, I think what do we have? Is it every forty-five minutes we have a eight mil bolus eight mil every bolus. Four, forty-five minutes, and yep. then um, you've still got your button to press every yeah, right. twenty minutes. <coughs> yeah. Okay, so that's pretty much that's the straightforward basics of putting it in. Um, that's that's probably long enough. I'm going to keep these guys here, and we'll we'll even do we'll do the next one, which is troubleshooting them. But um, I'll split it up into t- we'll split it up into two episodes because it's hard for people to listen to us for too long. <laughs> I find it hard enough Amateurs. myself. Thanks, guys. <laughs> I'll see you back uh, very soon. Yeah. Thank you. Good to be here, Roger. 
You've been listening to the Obstetric Anesthesia Basics podcast series, a short podcast series designed for anesthesia trainees new to obstetric anesthesia. These discussions are designed to encourage uh, understanding and appreciation of the challenges and issues that are frequently encountered in this area of anesthesia. However, there is no such thing as one correct way to practice obstetric anesthesia. Equipment, drugs, facilities, protocols and practices will and do vary across hospitals, geographical locations and time. You should always ensure that you follow the appropriate practice in your own institutions. Thank you for listening.